Exact Nature loves partnering with the Sobriety Diaries because we are both 100% committed to helping you reduce your dependency on drugs and alcohol. Founded by a father and son in addiction recovery, Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products help you face the exceptional challenges of recovery, from addictive cravings to mood and focus, and my favorite, better sleep. Available in oils, soft gels, gummies, and topical creams, Exact Nature literally has you covered. As a supporter of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 at checkout to receive a 20% discount on your order. This offer is good throughout 2023 and shipping is free. Go to exactnature.com to learn more and to see the full line of products in advanced strengths, economy sizes, and at value prices. Again, use the code TSD20 and head over to exactnature.com to see why these products should be a part of your sober life. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. I'm your host, Nate Kelly, a recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink, a recovery mentor and podcast producer. I am so grateful to be bringing you these powerful stories of recovery told by you, those who live them. Please share this podcast with anyone who may need it today. And with that, let's open the diary on episode 97. Welcome back to the Sobriety Diaries, my friends. So grateful you are here with me today. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode and for continuing to support the show, the community that you have helped to create, and helping those who still may be struggling from the disease of addiction or who have loved ones who are struggling. Today's episode is with my friend Cam's Campbell and was taken from a live stream that he and I did a few months ago on how we both turned our struggle with addiction into this digital world and utilizing the beautiful online recovery space and creating content surrounding not only our own journey, but those of others. We have a lot in common, myself and Cam's. So enjoy today's episode from our live stream with myself and Cam's. So Cam's, yeah, we're we're here to talk about all things recovery. We're here to talk about digital media and the online recovery world. We each have an audience uh, of, of those in recovery and beyond. Uh, so in, in true fashion of the Sobriety Diaries, I wanted to get started by talking a bit about your own recovery journey and how it sort of has led us to where we both are with um, sort of sharing our stories digitally. And before we hit go live or record, uh, we were sort of agreeing that this has now become an important part of our recovery and our, our sort of daily routine. So 
tell me a, a bit about what led you to seeking a path of recovery. Well, the short answer to that is I was about to lose my wife and my daughter and they had actually walked out the door and that was too much to bear. And that was the, the final straw. I mean, I'd had many, many final warnings up to that point, but this one felt like the actual hmm. last straw. And that's when I picked up the phone and called the number from the back of the newspaper that I knew was there because I'd seen it many, many times. I guess I was just waiting for the time that I would need it. Made the call and went to my first AA meeting that, that weekend. Thankfully, my wife came back with my daughter. And at the time, she was also expecting our son. Hmm. So you can imagine that the consequences were, were just too much to take. I wasn't willing to give all that up. And so I'd got to the stage where I was willing to do anything to keep them. And that's what led to me knocking on the doors of AA back in 2005. Wow. You've got me beat by 10 years. <laughs> Probably in age as well, by the looks of you. <laughs> I don't you? know. I, I don't know. Thankfully, my, my looks can be a bit deceiving. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we share that in common as well. The, the rooms definitely saved my life. And, you know, I took a lot and still take a lot from what I learned there. I definitely added things to my, you know, recovery repertoire, if you will, and continue to add and adjust and evolve, you know, as time goes along. But what was it about maybe going into your first meeting that, you know, you knew that you were in the right place or something maybe you took away from your first couple meetings? The biggest thing I remember from the early days was the feeling of relief that I felt when I finally said it out loud that I was an alcoholic. You know, I'd, I'd been through that whole denial thing for years, trying different things and none of it worked. And just finally to hold up my hands and say, my name's Cams, I'm an alcoholic. It was a massive relief. And that's that's what I remember most about those early days. How long was it before you got a sponsor? It wasn't long, probably about a month, maybe even less. I can't remember exactly, but it, it was only a couple of weeks to a month, I think, before I got somebody. And I picked a guy. This was in Luxembourg. I got sober in the city of Luxembourg where we lived at the time. And I picked a guy. He was a Cockney guy, Londoner, <laughs> a little bit older than me, a bit of a kind of Jack the Lad type. and. <laughs> I don't know what any of that means, but I like the way it sounds. Well, some of my UK listeners <laughs> will probably pick up on some of that. He came from London and he was he was very down to earth and very personable. And the reason I picked him was because I could imagine going for a drink with him and hey. having a good time. And I thought, you know, this guy. And I stayed with him as a sponsor till I left Luxembourg, which was in early 2008. So I was spending a lot of time with him and going to meetings with them. And when I left Luxembourg and moved back to Scotland, I made sure that I did my step five with him before I left. So that kind of gave me a deadline for getting through that part of the, mm -hmm. the 12 steps. And it's something I'm really, really glad that I did. My sponsor was big on the fact that we weren't wasting any time. So it was like, 
okay, step one, step two are done. Let's move on. You know, we're not going to kind of sit around and, and wait because that complacency will sneak in. And there's nothing worse than an alcoholic with time on their hands. So, and I have a female sponsor, which is a little unorthodox, but she was very, um, you know, very hot on the fact that, you know, we're going to bust through these steps in, I think, probably four months total. Did you have a similar experience? Were you kind of one after the next? Not quite four months. No, it was a bit longer than that. You know, I said that I got into the rooms 2005, finished my step five at the end of 2007. So that's kind of what my, my pace was like. We did have groups that would meet. So my sponsor had some other sponsors that he worked with and he would call us outside of the rooms to go to maybe someone's house or to a coffee shop or something and we would do step group work together. So there would be sponsees that were at different stages of the journey and then there was different sponsors and we would all meet as a group which was really really helpful yeah i think the community piece of it was one of the biggest sort of attributions of the program that kept me there and then essentially saved me because there's that accountability piece, you know, and mm. alcoholics were relentless. So if I said that I'm going to be at a meeting and I don't show up, there are going to be people that are asking why and calling and showing up. And, you know, that was something that I really wasn't used to because prior to that, you know, other than my family and close loved ones, most of my friends were just partiers or drinking friends, but it seemed Mm. like for the first time, these were people that actually cared about me. And yeah, that that community piece was just really big for me. And was your sponsor quite sort of hard line? Yeah, she's Mm. no nonsense for sure. Um, And, you know, put the responsibility on me. You know, she wasn't going to chase me down and, uh, you know, force me to do things. You know, she was very clear about me setting the tone and having the kind of self-motivation to guide myself with her sort of support, of course. But yeah, very, very no nonsense, but also just fucking hilarious too, which I think (laughs) is what drew me to her in the beginning. I was going to um, ask you, yeah. My very first meeting I went to when I was still drinking. So my f- best friend got sober about six months before I did. My bestie, we're still super close, still sober together, but she's got me beat by about six months. And she did everything in the most perfect way, how we're supposed to, attraction rather than promotion. You know, mm-hmm. she never forced it upon me or made it seem like I was lesser because I was still drinking. But she invited me to a meeting time and time again, while I finally took her up on it, but I was still drinking Mm. in a general sense and an actual sense. When I went to this meeting, I was very intoxicated and uh, my sponsor at the time, and I cried, I just cried, cried, cried in the corner the whole time at the meeting. And my future sponsor, this, this woman we're talking about came up to me after 
the meeting and was just like very matter of fact, like, why are you, why were you crying the whole time? <laughs> just like, <laughs> what, like, why are you crying? And I was just like, you know, it's, you know, nobody gets me and this life is so hard and all the things that we say. And she was just like, well, you know, I, I can help you change that. Or like, you're in the right place. Keep coming back. You know what we say to, to newcomers. And then when I had a clear mind and after I went to treatment and went back to my first, first meeting sober, uh, I saw her again there and recognized her immediately and kind of told her, you know, it had an impact on me. I remember it still to this day. And, you know, we started our conversation and ended up being my sponsor. But I think that kind of explains her personality that she was just like, no nonsense. Why are you crying? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, my life is over. I guess that's what you needed at the time. Exactly. Exactly right. So Cam's in, in your step work and sort of identifying things about ourselves that uh, perhaps we didn't realize prior to getting sober. Have you been able to uh, sort of pinpoint things maybe in, in your adolescence or early adulthood that not led to drinking, but, you know, we all have a, a sort of a list of, of things that sort of stick out. Uh, my friend Lisa describes traumas as traumas with a capital T or traumas with the lowercase T. I think traumas mm-hmm. with the lowercase T we all go through and handle and manage, but are there certain things that you reflect on or work on since realizing that? Yeah, definitely. There are a number of things that have come to light. The, probably the biggest one was when my son was diagnosed with autism. And we went through that whole process. He was diagnosed about the age of six, I think. And when I was talking with the consultant pediatrician, he was asking me some questions. And it became quite clear to me that I was also on the spectrum. And so was my dad. And so was my cousin. It seemed to be a a condition that hits all the males on my side of the family. And that was a big sort of penny drop moment for me that explained why I didn't feel like I fitted in with normal people because I wasn't. I just didn't know it at the time. So I, I didn't get a diagnosis. I never went through that process. I don't really feel that I need to. It's, it's clear to me that that's part of my personality and I, I do have that condition along with attention deficit disorder, which I've also come to learn a lot about through my son's diagnosis. So that's been incredibly helpful to me. The other big thing was when I was 17, I fell off a cliff when I was in the military. I was on exercise in the Lake District, which is in the north of England, where there's a lot of mountains and stuff. And we were doing some military training there. And I got knocked off a cliff. I was 17 years old. I almost died, smashed up my right leg. I almost lost my leg. They managed to save it, although it I'm not really sure whether that was the best thing because I still got a lot of problems from it now. But then, you know, I had my 18th birthday when I was in hospital. I carried on having treatment for the next year and eventually was discharged from the military because of my my injury. And at that time, I was, that's when I first discovered cannabis or hash, as we call it. Yeah. 
I was getting into that for pain relief. And I was also getting into opioids. So dihydrocodeine, which is a, a codeine-based painkiller that's very, very strong. Yeah. I was getting those on repeat from the doctor. Just whenever I needed more, I would just call up and get another script. And so that's when that came into my life. So about 18, age of 18, I was starting to get into prescription painkillers. And that really was the one sort of big incident that led to addiction, I would say, along with the sort of feeling of not being able to fit in with normal people because yeah. I wasn't, you know. Yeah. So how long did the prescription part of it go on for? Oh, that's quite an interesting story because I got <laughs> I got sober in, from alcohol in 2005. I carried on with prescription drugs until probably 2019. And I remember having these dialogues in my head, you know, I don't need to bring this up in AA. This isn't a problem. I'm getting these from the doctor. You know, it's right. fine. And it's not, you know, it's same with alcohol. You go through all that denial stuff when you're like, you know, I'm probably an alcoholic, but no, I must be okay because I'm not as bad as that guy. I think so there's I went, an extra layer yeah. of when it's prescribed, there's Absolutely. probably an extra layer of this mask or things that you have to peel back. That's got to be tougher. Yeah, yeah. And there was a moment when I always said I was never going to share about it in the rooms because it wasn't relevant. I was in AA. I wasn't in any or right. any other kind of A. This was yeah. about alcohol, so it was off limits. And eventually I found the courage because I'd, I'd had enough, you know, and I, I brought it up in the rooms and was surprised to hear other people going, ping, ping, me too, me too. Me. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, you know why? Yeah. Why did I not do this sooner? And then I found the courage to go to my GP, my, my doctor, and say, look, I want to come off these. At that time, I was on tramadol. I don't know if you get that over where you yeah. are, but yeah, it's pretty strong stuff. It is. And I asked him to help me get off it and not to give me it again. And he said, yeah, this is going to take six months to a year. And I was like, you what? <laughs> wow. To kind of you're decrease on. your dosage? So it was done under medical supervision while I was sharing about it in the rooms as well. And that's how I managed to get clear of it. But that, honestly, Nate, I don't think about alcohol now. That's been removed. Yeah. But the prescription painkillers, that's that's still there. That's the one that I struggle with. Yeah. And I think, you know, probably without eliminating the alcohol first and sort of coming at it with a clear mind and understanding the benefits that have happened in your life since removing alcohol, would it have even crossed your mind to then take this next step and eliminate the, the prescription drugs as well? Probably not. No. And an interesting thing that happened last week was an old university friend of mine that I was sharing rooms with for three years while I was at uni. And he and I used to smoke a lot of weed together, you know. And he came, over, he came over to stay. He brought some weed with him. He offered me it. And I said, no, thanks. And I had been wondering before he came whether I would be able to do that. And I surprised myself by mm -hmm. not even really feeling like I wanted it. So... 
that was a kind of moment of growth, I think, for me as well. Absolutely. Now, yeah. did he know that you had kind of made this change in your life or the first time yeah. that you guys had kind of hung out prior to? Well, we've been in touch quite a lot over the years and he's, he's very well aware of my journey. And he's been very helpful actually with it as well because he's, I mean, he's got his own ideas about trauma and all of that kind of stuff. And he's got his own path, which is fine. Obviously, he's, you know, he's his own person. And the fact that we can discuss these things is, is what true friendship's all about. I too have been blessed in, you know, the people that are closest to me and that mattered if they stuck around or mattered if they were still in my life are still um so i'm blessed in that regard as well so thanks for sharing so in recovery we have both sort of found our way to this beautiful online recovery space and using digital media to share our stories i guess at least for me in the hopes of helping others i imagine that uh, that fuels your, um, you know, content creation as well. Tell me about that process and how you came to, you know, that being a part of your own recovery and uh, sort of taking that leap on online. Okay. It's, it's a phenomenon I can't explain, which is that I like to talk things out and publish them because it helps me. And this began with my podcast, really, when I, around 2018, when I was diagnosed with depression. I was put on medication for that, and I was at my lowest ebb. And I found myself just talking into a microphone when I was out walking the dog, and then coming home and putting it online. And I think without that publishing component, I probably wouldn't have done it. And that's the part that I can't explain. I don't know why it's the publishing component that makes it work for me, but it does. And so I carried on doing that, mainly podcast form, just audio to begin with. And then I started doing it more as a video and started publishing my morning pages probably around 2020. And I wanted to get into writing more. And the more I did it, the more I learned about myself and what my values were and how to find a way of living in alignment with those values. And so primarily the content that I put out there is for me. I make it for me because it makes me improve incrementally each day, particularly the morning pages part when I can sit down and and I've, I've gone with the steps. I, I call it taking personal inventory because that's part of step 10, which for those that don't know is that we continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And that's kind of the vibe I'm going for in my pages so that I can continue to take, to write about my character flaws, to analyze where things went wrong that I would like to maybe have done differently and in the hope that, the next time these things arise i will do them differently and it's it's an incredibly powerful exercise and it's become a habit and i think that's probably the most important component of it now is that there are days when i don't feel like doing it but because i've made it a habit 
and because I'm publishing it and now because I've got people that are maybe expecting it and enjoying it and getting something from it, that makes me do the thing when I don't really feel like doing it. And this this came up this morning when I was mm-hmm. talking to my camera out with the dog is that most of the time when I don't feel like doing it, in fact, I would say 99% of the time, <laughs> Same. when I do the thing, I always feel better afterwards. And so having it as a habit is the thing that pushes me into doing it. And I think it's maybe that that makes me publish because that's the accountability component of it that, that keeps me going when otherwise I would probably just not bother. That's right. It's it's kind of an extension, that accountability and, and from the rooms, right? People are mm. expecting you to show up. People are expecting you to post. Uh, and that's the exact same feeling for me yeah. most most times do i want to log in and and turn everything yeah. on and and <laughs> all that not really but i always feel better after i do it and Good. people are expecting it and yeah. i know that i'm helping other people so you know how can i not show up uh, yeah. so completely I think you mentioned the rooms there and that's something i hadn't actually considered so thank you for that this yeah. is something my sponsor always said to me was that when you're sitting at home and you've got that thing going around your head saying i can't really be bothered going to this meeting today so that's when you need to get your ass in the car and get yep. to the meeting he said never ever ever have that tribunal in your head just go to the fucking meeting do and it it worked you know yeah that's one thing and and i've gone through some episodes of your podcast just to kind of familiarize myself and it's one thing I love about it is there are these kind of different formats all within the same podcast, the walking sort of stream of consciousness, the morning notes. Um, and it is very personal and vulnerable. And I think that is what makes a successful recovery podcast. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> No, you you mentioned earlier about the the online recovery space and that we're both participating in it. Uh I kind of, I mean, I know I have been, but I don't feel like I have been because I haven't been engaging with anybody else. It's all just been me without, I mean, I do get the odd comments and what have you on my YouTube, which is always appreciated, but it's something that I want to do more of. I want to connect with more people because I know that I'm going to learn something from them. And so this was something that came up probably around about the time that you reached out to me was that I'd come up with the idea of trying to get rid of that fear factor, that imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. You're I think back. we're back. Yeah. And, you know, just get over myself. And try yeah. And just do it. it. <laughs> yeah. And it's scary. I mean, you're, you're a great example of, of how to go about this. So I'm, I'm taking notes because you're, <laughs> Your social media is just brilliant. The way that well, you're thank doing. you. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, you. You've you're off to a good start. I mean, with the live stream and you know, kind of recording the podcast all in one. And um, so I would say you are you're you're doing it. You're just <laughs> doing it, and that's all it takes. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, what challenges have you found in? I guess we've kind of touched on them, but in a kind of regular production routine, do you stick to a schedule? Do you find time when you can being a parent? 
uh, or is it a little more regimented for you? Far as yeah, it's something that I've tried to make a habit. I think this is the, the biggest component for me. So I'm autistic, a routine works for me. And so that's what I have. I've set up my morning routine, which is get up, walk the dog, turn on the camera if I feel like it. If I don't, that's okay. Yeah. But the morning pages, that's that's important. That has to happen. So the only time it doesn't is if I've got visitors, which we had last week, as I've mentioned, or if I'm traveling, you know, that kind of thing. But if I'm at home and I'm able to, that's that's the number one thing is my pages. That's good. Yeah, it, we have to focus on ourselves, right? Or else all of it mm. goes away. So I think you having found something that pretty easily fits into a, a daily routine that is so impactful uh, is is a huge benefit and important um, for you to stick to. Otherwise, you're not worth a shit, right? During the day. Do you feel that absence in a day if you haven't been able to kind of commit to the morning notes? Yeah, I think I can get away with one or two days. But after that, I really do start to notice a difference. And I say that because it just happened last week. Yeah. When we had visitors and then we had to travel a bit. And it was like, I think I went over a week anyway without Ooh. putting anything out. And it was like, ooh, you know. Starting to get tingly, yeah, a little yeah, itchy. Yeah, yeah. And I notice <laughs> when I'm, like, if I have to go out and do grocery shopping or something like that, then I will I can tell by the way that I'm reacting to other people that, you know, I'm not in a good place right now. and Maybe I've not been taking care of myself properly. and Stay back. Doing the habits, you know. How about you? What challenges do you face with production? I think, uh, well, I'm a new entrepreneur and have just launched the coaching business and the coursework. So my schedule, I think just the sheer amount of things that I'm like trying to pack into each day is tough. Mm. Um, but to find space to create that routine, which I'm, I'm getting there. I'm almost there. I had to, we're back. Yeah. Just to catch myself up and kind of start with the clean slate and kind of back record some episodes so that I could catch myself up. Uh, mm. So I think just as a one man show, um, hopefully, you know, when my client base starts to expand and a little more revenue is coming in, uh, hopefully I'll be able to maybe add to the team and, you know, have mm. some help on the production and editing side. Uh, editing man takes up so much time. So I think that would be the first thing that I outsource to somebody else, but I haven't yeah. yet. So I think really just finding my routine and finding enough hours in the day. Um, but once I sit down and start rolling or when I have that raw footage to edit or, uh, you know, chop up into reels or TikToks or whatever it may be, that's the part that I, I love. So once wow. I get down and start rolling, like it's, it's smooth sailing. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's sitting down and, and actually just doing it. That should have been the title of today's show, just doing it. Like, just <laughs> fucking do it. Yeah. I'm kind of the opposite. I'm okay at sitting down and doing the thing. It's the all the social media stuff and repurposing and adding captions, and I just don't bother with any of that. <laughs> You'll notice that my podcasts are generally not edited at yeah. all. They just yeah, go there's out. A, there's a sort of natural feel to it, though. I don't think... You know, we, I asked you kind of what equipment you use. And I think if you pay attention to the source, I guess, and mm. uh, the audio in its raw state, I guess, if that makes sense, yeah. um, which you do, you know, audio is king when it comes to podcasting. People will click it off real quick if they can't understand or hear what you're saying. So, um, yeah, there's kind of that naturalist feel feel to your yeah. to your audio no thanks well we might make a good duo then if you're like more on the recording production side i'm kind of on the post-production <laughs> side it's definitely room for collaboration there, yeah. yeah yeah well cams what advice would you have for someone who is looking to start a YouTube channel or dive into the world of digital media. You know, I know you still have, you know, some things to improve about your own system, but what advice would you give a young YouTuber? Well, interesting question, because I have a young YouTuber that uh -oh. I've been giving advice to and none of it yeah. is stuck. <laughs> My son is, he was doing- Yeah, but they're not going to list that just out of- pure spite well, they're not going to listen to your parents exactly yeah who i didn't listen to mine either so fair enough um an interesting one is if if you've heard of mkbhd he's one of the the biggest youtubers he's got multiple millions of followers and i actually studied with ali abdal who did a, a course on how to become a youtuber i know him yeah yeah is he, um, he's the one that used to be a doctor, right? That's right, yeah. Or is a doctor, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was I like in him. his first cohort of the Part-Time YouTuber Academy, which was really, really, really good. The number of people I met there was just incredible that I'm still in touch with now. And one of the things that he shared that really stuck with me was he showed us the first video that MKBHD ever uploaded to YouTube, which was a few years ago. And it was absolutely dreadful. It was just this guy looking <laughs> awkward, gawky and uncomfortable and just talking on camera and publishing. And then you look at him now. And if you can see that even he had to go through that, then that should give you comfort that your first video is going to suck. Yeah. If you want to make a video and you've got the desire, that's all you need. And a camera and a, a mic. But just get on the camera and record it and know in your head that it's going to suck and just publish it anyway. And yeah, start one, somewhere. Next one's going to be better and the next one's going to be better. And you just have to start. It's as simple as that. Cam's Campbell, I'm so grateful that we crossed paths and we have so much in common with recovery and digital media and i think this could be the first of maybe a series of live streams or other collaborations in the future um 
if you're down, I'm down. Uh, so thanks for, yeah, thanks for showing up today. Thanks for everyone on the live stream. Ruben and Mel, thanks for your comments. Thanks so much for listening today, friend. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in today's episode and how to connect with our guests. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, everyone.